0: The following message was recorded at Spirit and Truth, the 2019 Clearnote Shepherds Conference, presented by Warhorn Media. This session is titled Worship with Our Fathers and was given by the Reverend Tim Bailey. Tim is the senior pastor of Clearnote Church in Bloomington, Indiana. He has a Masters of Divinity from Gordon Conwell and has served as a Presbyterian pastor for more than 30 years. Listen to Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. Despising it doesn't say he didn't notice the shame, right? Despising the shame and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. (laughs) Now, could you live with that? Could you live with that? Despising the shame, sitting down at the right hand of God. Can we live with that? Is that sufficient, or do we require that we that we change Christianity into a way of giving us all the lusts of our flesh, but in a sort of pious way? Therefore, now you know the word therefore. When you preach, always focus on these prepositions and and conjunctions and everything, because therefore tells you what? What does it tell you? It tells you that based on what he's just said, this. And so this is, since we have such a great cloud of witnesses, but it starts with therefore. So then you know that the previous chapter is what? It's Yeah, it it is the cloud of witnesses. And so we're surrounded by a cloud. What is a cloud of mosquitoes? Is it a few? No, a cloud of mosquitoes is when they go up your nose, in your ear, and in your mouth. We have a cloud of witnesses. So then you go back to the previous chapter, and what you find is you find a list of the patriarchs and of all the heroes of the faith. It's the great faith chapter. What is it that Calvin says about the patriarchs? Do any of you know? I think it's the most inspiring part of the Institutes where he goes through the patriarchs and he just wastes them with their sin. He just goes through the patriarchs and talks about the wickedness of their sin. And then he uses that to teach the doctrine of justification by faith, of God's mercy, of his grace. And so here we have these patriarchs, and I I am a supporter of the disruption of Donald Trump. I'm not a supporter of him as a man, but I like his disruption, and Christians just have a hissy fit about me. You know, they just think that any man that's you know you know, that no Christian should ever support him. But I do. And 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 so when I'm talking to them, what do I say? I say, well, you remember in the great hall of faith? Remember that dude that's there? Who? Samson. I mean, do you think any evangelical Christian today would admit that they knew Samson? <laughs> Let alone put him in the hall of faith? Samson was honestly perverse. All right. And he's in that list. And so we have this list, and the list begins with this. So now I'm skipping a chapter back, and this is the beginning of chapter 11, and it says this, Romans 11.1, 1, Now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Now, truthfully, let me ask, whose approval do you want? Be real honest about this. Whose approval? Whose? We have a man here who does evangelism work and discipleship with uh, new, new Chinese. And a number of them have come to faith, been baptized. He does a wonderful work. And there are things I've learned about Scripture from the Chinese. One of the things I've learned is, with people from Asia, you never get far from them considering turning their backs on their relatives. It is the most difficult thing for somebody coming to faith. They want to know, does this mean I can't observe the Buddhist funeral service for my my grandmother, when she dies, my parents will, ne- will never live with me not being there, but it's idolatry, you know? And so you deal constantly in preaching to Chinese with the question of approval, of shame and of approval, and of the division that Jesus brings to families, okay? But how are you a Christian without turning your back on your family? And you say, well, yeah, the Chinese have to do that. Listen, I tell you, there's nothing that's more certain in this church than when a young college or graduate student comes to faith or comes to discipleship, however you want to define it, that their family, often upstanding PCA evangelical Christians, from that point on, they hate you, they hate your church, they hate your elders, and they begin to call you a cult. Now, why is that? Is it because we're a cult? No, it's not because we're a cult. It's because one thing you know will make sure that you get called a cult is if you ever come with the gospel in such a way that it causes somebody to have to make a decision, what? Against their family. The, the very definition of a cult is that Jesus says, unless you hate your father and mother. And so you have to make a choice. And that is what it means to be a cult in America today. And so whose approval do you want? Do you want your mom, mother's Uh, You know, some of you, I'm going to say, you want your mama's? You want your father's? Do you want your uncle's? Do you want your next-door neighbor's approval? Do you want your wife's approval? (laughs) And you know I'm not meaning that you shouldn't want your wife's approval, but you know if you go into decisions where your wife has a strong opinion, and your goal is to make her happy, it corrupts your decision-making. Do you understand this? And so, listen, they had approval. And whose approval did they have? Come on, God's approval. Did any man who was godly ever die with the disapproval of his wife? Yeah, yeah. It's sad, but some men have a Christian wife and they die with her disapproval. Men, we have to decide who we love. We have to decide who we love. We have to decide who's wise. I'm not saying your wife is stupid. Often, there are many of you here who would be much better off having your wife make the major decisions. But when it comes to who you're honoring and who you have approval for, you better make sure it's not your wife that you want it from. Many of you raise your children with an eye to the approval of your children. It's the surest way of ruining your children. Your children know it, and so they know that God isn't your father. Because if God were your father, then you'd be a real father to them. But instead, you're, you're desiring your children to like you when they grow up. And so it completely corrupts your fatherhood, right? Right? We all know this. And so these men were approved, for by it the men of old gained approval. And these are our fathers. These are the people whose, whose shoulders we stand on as pastors and as elders. By faith the men of old gained approval. Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, they got approval, and they're surrounding us, and it's a cloud. There are that many of them. Uh, Back in 1983, my father had the privilege of giving me uh, my ordination charge in Partyville. My father-in-law and my dad were both on the ordination council, and uh, I had the privilege of my father giving me the ordination charge. And here's how it ends. You ready? At the end, he says, Tonight, you are being asked, Wilt thou? Future tense. Someday, you will be asked, Hast thou? As an under-shepherd, serve the great shepherd so that you may answer in that day, I have fought a good fight, I have finished my course. When we lead the people of God in worship, it really is obvious to anybody watching who has half a brain whose approval we want. It's very obvious. What is the mark of a shepherd who's false? He flatters his people and he says, peace, peace, where there is no peace and it's obvious that he wants the approval of his congregation. I've thought about whether to say this, but it's my conviction, so I'm going to say it. I'm not saying it to be um, controversial, but I was listening to Andrew and to Jody as they spoke, and I was sitting there thinking about us as pastors, particularly in some of the discussion of zeal by Jody, and I was thinking that the reason that our worship is Often so, so thin, so superficial, so paltry, so poor, so weak is that we design our worship to please the, the wives of our elders. <laughs> now, I know that sounds horrible to say, but forget your church because it just is too subjective. You have to think about other churches and you go into PCA church after PCA church. And from the time you walk in the front door, you know women prevail. It's baby blue. It has all this fancy furniture, and it looks like a boudoir. You know what I'm talking about, these southern churches. They're all baby blue. It's like, please, can I be a man here, or do I have to start getting down and crawling on my hands and knees and being subservient to the femininity of this place? And then you go in the sanctuary, and it's got all these gilded, expensive lights, and it's like, those lights are for, like, Louis Sixteenth. You know, what are you guys thinking? You know, let them eat cake and have chandeliers. You know, are you all with me? It's like, oh, please. Then the worship starts. <laughs> and what's the worship like? It's completely feminine. And if you say these things, everybody gets mad. They say, well, what's masculine and what's feminine about worship? And I say this. I don't know, but I can, I can see it when I see it. And they say, yeah, but give me some d- examples. And I've, I've gotten smarter in my old age. And I say, well, I, I just don't know any examples to give you. But I know it when I seize it. And they say, well, come on. You have to have some idea of what you're seeing. And I say, no, I don't have any idea what I'm seeing. I have no clue what's feminine worship, what's femi worship, what's effeminate worship. No, I have no clue, but I knows it when I smells it. Well, what does it smell like? Not bacon. (laughs) If you've ever been on a pig farm, you know what bacon smells like. (laughs) That was my wife laughing. (laughs) Listen, you want your worship service to show that you love God. You want your worship service to show that you want his approval. Okay? Is this simple? It's simple. And how do you do that? I don't know. It's up to you. It's your church. It's your elders' church. And you're going to have to fight with your elders to move in that direction. There's nobody who has ever made any changes to worship that doesn't have to fight with the elders. No one. When I entered the ministry, there was a pastor who was older who had been the interim pastor. And some men in the PCUSA spend their lives being interim pastors. This guy was a professor down at Dubuque Seminary. So he'd go out on the weekends and take churches that were without a pastor. And he'd care for them for six months to a year until they got a new pastor. And so I was getting some advice from him. And he gave me two pieces of advice, one I will do to entertain you, and the other one I will do to shake you. The first piece of advice is, he said, listen, Tim, I would recommend that any weddings you do, that you tell the bride and groom, when they ask you what your honorarium is, you tell them one-tenth of what you spend on the wedding. (laughs) And then he said, and I am delighted. To get $10. (laughs) Those are your pastors. (laughs) You know what I'm talking about. So that was the entertaining one. Here's the hard edged one. He said, Every time I go into a church, the first thing I do is change the order of worship. He said, Because the minute you change the order of worship, all the power structures come out and they're screaming for your blood. And I immediately know where the power structures of the church are. Isn't that fascinating? We have a man who he and his wife were here at this church. he was getting his master's and, at the music school, at Jacob's School of Music, and his wife was our secretary. And so he led the worship, and uh, she was in the church office. And then they left, and they took a position at a very large Presbyterian church in the South. And he was a music director. He was not an officer. He was not a pastor. He was a music director of this church. He'd been there a couple of years. He'd done good work. His wife was pretty. His children were well-behaved. He was handsome. He had a good voice. He did his work well. But one day in that service, he changed the tune that he had the congregation sing the doxology. That's the only change he made. Do, 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 do. And do you know what tune he went to? Praise Him, O oh creatures here below. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise God from whom all blessings Now, honestly, how radical is that? That's all he did. And you know, at the next elders' meeting, that pastor, the senior pastor, defended him by saying that it had been his idea to change the tune. That's how serious the conflict was, that the pastor felt the best way to protect him was just to lie. And I'm not usually in favor of lies. (laughs) (laughs) But in that case, you would all know his name if I told you who the pastor was, and I admire him more for that lie than for anything he's written. So you have a woman leading worship, and she's somewhat in the middle. She's not all breathy and pretty and and lithe. She's solid, and she plays the piano well, and so she's not an eye-candy threat to the church, and she's not breathy. Men, you understand what I'm talking about. Or you have a woman who's lithe and beautiful and breathy, and she's leading worship. Remember I told you that I don't know what it is, I can't describe it, but I knows it when I sees it. Well, now I'm getting into some of these details. You have to be able to go through the details of your worship and prioritize what you're going to deal with, right? Is this making sense to you? So, for instance, we have a couple uh, here today whose son went into a church in the south, and they went down to visit him, and guess what? You know who was leading worship was a woman who was wearing very tight leather pants on the platform. Now, let me ask you a question. If you're the pastor... And let's say that that woman is the wife of your head elder. Okay, now you all with me. What do you do? There are also a whole bunch of other problems in the church. There's no discipline in the elders board. Nobody in the church is ever rebuked or admonished. Everybody cultivates ignorance about the sheep. There's no love for the sheep. I could go on and on and on. I'm not saying that's true of the church. I'm just saying you're the pastor, and you know that you have a whole thing. But... You have a woman with tight leather pants Sunday morning leading the worship. Now, what do you do? I don't know about you, but I'd start with the tight pants. You know, I just think some things up with which we cannot put. I mean, this is so awful, right? Now, you women might not think it's so awful, but every man here is agreeing with me, right? Men, raise your hand. You just have to start there, don't you? But then probably. If that woman is also teaching a Sunday school class, and she's teaching things that are heterodox, maybe you just don't want to open your mouth about Sunday school. Look, as a pastor, you're always making triage decisions. You're always deciding what you won't address. You're never just deciding what you will address. And you have to remember that reform is a slow work, and you have to be patient with it. And you have to learn to prioritize. There's some people in your church that are going to die no matter what you do. There's some people that are going to get better no matter what you do. And there's some people that if you don't immediately address them, they will die. Whereas if you had immediately addressed them, they would have lived. That's triage. And you have to do that in leadership decisions. But you do that not letting your fears be what determines what you do. Because why? Because you love God. Notice I didn't say you fear God, but now I'm going to say that. It's not just that you love God. It's also that you have realized that sometimes you just need to fear him because you don't have much affection for him. And so then let fear motivate you. Are you all with me? Jesus never says to do something without saying to not do something. He never holds out promises of blessing without threatening cursing. And so, sometimes you're going to be motivated by fear of the consequences of what you do, and there's nothing wrong with that. Are you all with me? I keep asking that. I should stop asking it, okay? Um, But, you know, that's one of the things I notice that is so depressing about American worship, is the people are so unresponsive, and it drives me crazy, because your face is unbelievably responsive. I can tell. But, you know, you're all repressed. You have to sit there and act like nothing's going on inside your noggin, and you're just like, sit, 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 wait, is he done yet? Is he done yet? Is he done yet? And I'm supposed to keep going even though I know you want me done yet. And you all with me? <laughs> now, I want to talk about a couple different aspects of your worship service. You've got prayer, you've got the Lord's Supper, you have singing, and you have preaching, okay? And let's start with Preaching. If in your preaching you're not preaching to the conscience and you're not exposing sin, I don't care if it's Christmas Eve. I don't care if it's Easter morning. Don't ever miss an opportunity to cut with the knife, because as as Ben Burlingham made it very clear to us, it's when we're cut with the knife that we can go have the faith to go through the veil. It's when we're cut with the knife that we have faith for Jesus. It's weird. Okay? When <laughs> Phil and Jody and the rest of them began to lead worship here, for many years I had been frustrated with uh, with contemporary music, because every song ended with a crescendo, with some broad singing at the top of her lungs and all the brass piercing the ceiling. You know, if you ever listen, I mean, it, honestly, it was a crescendo at the end of every song. Every song was a crescendo. And I was so utterly sick of it, it was like I had eaten Twinkies for 40 years. And it's like my life was actually not that victorious, <laughs> you know. And I wanted some singing that was not that. And so Jody and the other men began to write songs in, that were about hell and death and judgment, because that's what past ages of the church sang about. Did you know that every time when they came to harvest and Thanksgiving, every single time, the songs were filled with judgment, because at fall. You keep the grain and throw out the chaff, you burn it. And so guess what? They'd use the seasons of the year to inspire their hymns because the seasons testify to God's truth, right? And so they began to write these songs. And what I found was that as these men had faith to lead the congregation in worship with songs that sang of the judgment, that had zeal, that were loud, guess what happened? Do any of you know? my preaching completely changed. And I was not a work in progress at the time. <laughs> I, was a, I was a finished work. And my preaching changed because instead of standing up and feeling like I was having to, like, bench press the world or squat press or whatever you call it, stand up, all of a sudden I felt like I was having to come up to the understanding and faith of the congregation. Isn't that something? So I cannot overestimate the importance of your music. I just can't. You men don't realize the degree to which your music affects your preaching. And so I don't know how I could ever have written the things that I've written the last few years if I didn't sit every single day, day after day, thousands and thousands of times, listening to their psalms and listening to their other music. So here's another principle about music. When you're writing your sermon... Be incredibly careful about what you listen to as you do that, okay? I will not write my sermons to anything other than Good Shepherd and My Soul Among Lions now. I won't do it, okay? I mean, once out of every hundred times, you'll hear me maybe listening to something else. You know who it used to be? It used to be Michael Card's album on The Prophet, okay? You need your music to be inspiring you to take risks, okay? to have risky thoughts which might come out of your mouth, <laughs> okay? You know, years ago, I was involved in writing a statement of faith against contemporary wickedness and heterodoxies, and it was a bunch of leaders of renewal groups and denominations, and the guy that led it sort of was a, a theologian named Donald Blesch. Some of you have heard of his name. I remember in this meeting, we were actually in Wheaton, there were about 25 of us, I remember him saying, now the statement we're going to write, it's going to begin with an affirmation, and then it will have a denial. And he said, the denial will be the thing that has the strength. And so often today in our preaching, we make affirmations without denials. Remember I said, Jesus is always giving you the threat of curse as well as the promise of blessing. And so your sermons have to have both God's no and his yes. And the nature of preaching today is it's all yes, thinking that by saying lots of yeses that you'll get them to avoid the no. And it doesn't work like that with children. This is stupid. Have faith for the no, right? Have faith for the no. Because that's all of you. If I ask you how God's worked in you, unfortunately, most of us learn from the no. You know? I mean, me? Are you kidding me? I never did anything because people told me it was the right thing to do. I did all the wrong things and suffered and, and then learned the right things, you know? I finally got so sick of the consequences of my sin. I mean, come on, guys. And then we expect our people to have us be a nice guy and repent? You know, look at John the Baptist. You know, the Pharisees come. Who told you to flee the wrath to come? Produce fruit in keeping with repentance. Now, I want to do something about liturgy here, and then we'll be pretty close to the end. Um, Have you noticed that there's been hardly anything said about preaching here? Have you noticed that? Let me read a couple of things to you, and this is in the book. I hope you'll read the book. I think it'll be helpful, okay? The book starts with exhortations to love the church and ends with exhortations to love the church. But in the middle, it goes through the preaching of the apostles, fellowship, the breaking of bread, and prayer, and opens up how we are betraying Scripture and church tradition, our fathers, in how we practice those four devotions of the early church. Now, I'm on the issue of preaching here, and this is what William Cunningham, many of you read his historical theologies; is absolutely a master. And William Cunningham says this, it was mainly by the spread of erroneous and extravagant notions on the subject of the sacraments that the fundamental doctrines of the gospel were set aside and perverted. Now, I'm going to say a few things about the Lord's Supper, and it's going to make some of you very uncomfortable, but let me... Well, let me read one more. This is Pre- Presbyterian theologian John Leith. He died probably 20 years ago. He says, A characteristic of the Reformers' liturgy is the emphasis on hearing and receiving in faith the Word of God in Word and Sacrament. The centrality of the sermon cannot be disputed. The Reformation was a great preaching revival, probably the greatest in the history of the Christian Church. Now, If you're at all familiar with the conservative reform world, you know that in the last 15 to 20 years, there's been a tremendous revival of concern to restore Calvin's practice of the Lord's Supper to the church today. And the principal way it's been restored is how? It's weekly communion. And so even liberal redeemer churches have gone to weekly communion. Everybody's gone to weekly communion. And everybody that's gone to weekly communion has reassured themselves what? that that is the central thing you need to do to restore Calvin's practice. Because Calvin wanted weekly communion. And we know he did want weekly communion, right? Did Calvin get weekly communion? The civil magistrates wouldn't let him, right? But if you read Calvin, what he says is the people would not stand for it. The people, okay? Well, we began to put the actual text used... By Knox, which was a copy of Calvin's liturgy, in our service book, it's kept right here under here. Okay, we went to every other week communion, and I flip it open, and I have a, an approximation; it's pretty close of Calvin and Knox's communion service, right? And you know, being somebody who wants to restore the fathers' practice, you know, I believe in Calvin, I believe in Knox, right? So I open it up usually. I feel the congregation, and what I feel is the people do not want me to use Calvin's liturgy. Why? Now, if I were to ask you why they don't want you to read the liturgy and why they didn't want weekly communion, probably many of you would say, well, because he had tender consciences and they were fearful about coming to the Lord's table. Because for many of us, that's the issue we face. I don't want to repent. You better, because some get sick and others die. I don't know if your brain works. This is how my brain works, right? And so you would think they don't want weekly communion because they don't want to get sick and die, and they don't want to have to repent. And somehow the sacraments make a fine point of things. You know, I'm either going to take it or not take it. How often did the late medieval period, how often did they go to communion prior to the Reformation? Once a year. Maybe twice. So who was going to all those other masses? The religious. In the Roman Catholic Church, that's what they call them. The monks, the nuns, the priests. The people didn't go. And so they're supposed to go from a, from a once a year, week, we refer to that as Christmas and Easter Christians, to a weekly practice. And you have to add that on top of a sermon that's two hours long. Certainly an hour long, but often two hours long. And so you get done listening to Calvin and the other reformers and having the different prayers and the different songs and the the apostles. You go through all this, and then Calvin preaches, let's say, an hour and a half, the morning service, and then comes his his Lord's service liturgy. And the roast is in the pot, the baby's crying and hasn't had his nap, and you still have catechism at 1 o'clock. And then you have another service in the afternoon, and everybody goes to them. Of course the people didn't want the Lord's Supper. Of course they didn't want it. Because it added a minimum of 20 minutes, if not 30 minutes, to every service. And and they all sat down at tables in Geneva. Don't even give me your weekly communion. Don't even raise the subject with me. Because if you're going to tell me you've restored Calvin's practice because you have weekly communion and you have eviscerated the service of the table exhortations and warnings and of all the prayers and the liturgy that they had, you're not doing what Calvin did. What a joke! We have weekly communion. Slam, bang, it's over. Slam, bang, boom, 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 Don't tell me that we've restored Calvin's practice. It's hypocritical. And I wanted to read to you Calvin's Lord's Table exhortations. Calvin, Knox, and all of them use basically the same words. And it's not just that those words take a long time, but do you know what I'm going to say now? It's intense. It's really scary to hear what they actually said at the Lord's Table in the warnings. We are not doing what Calvin did. What I've noticed in all the Reformed churches is the warnings are gone. They're just, come, 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 come. And then you add in the fact that they say, don't you dare examine yourself. Now, I know I have some people with steam coming out of their ears right now. Now, let's say, that, well, let me back up now. Those of you that have steam coming out of your ears, just listen to me for a second, Okay. Let's, let's look at this honestly, and let's see, what have we done? What we have done is restored weekly communion, and then we have rejected the uniform exposition and exegesis of 1 Corinthians 11 by the entire Reformed Church. And then we have removed the warnings, we've removed the warnings, we've removed the necessity of examining whether there's incest in your home. Now, those of you that know the exegesis know what I'm talking about, Okay. And then we make this big show that we've restored the reformers' worship. It's Pure hypocrisy. The reformers never, never would have allowed them to remove the fear of God from the Lord's table. And that's what we've done. And so don't make a big show out of being standing on the shoulders of Calvin. You don't. You know, what you're actually doing is taking the things that really matter in Calvin's liturgy and removing them and then saying, we have weekly communion. It's disgusting. Now, how do I really feel about it? (laughs) Listen, if you want to have weekly communion, that's fine, but you get the civil magistrates and the people to agree that you can have two and a half worship services every single week. Then you use the table warnings, and then you exhort the people to examine themselves, whether they're committing incest. And then I will be impressed, but not until then. Okay, is everybody with me? You have used it once. Now, listen, men. What this shows is that we are sinners as we lead worship. We. We have nobody to blame but ourselves. And now, in our music, in our prayers, in our Lord's table services, in our preaching, we need to repent. Because why? Because the Bible says that we are to be submitted to and obeyed by the people of the church. Why? Because we keep watch over their souls as men who must give an account guys. We have to repent and change. It's just that simple. What you do and how you do it has to be done in love. You can't go back and make this change and then get rid of the leather pants. You know, we have to love our people and bring them along. But if there is no risk when you go back to your church of your new commitments, then what in the world did you come for? I want to end by reading two things the first thing i'm going to read is uh, a letter that my father got from an older woman who was in a small town and who had who wanted to explain to my father what kind of pastor people in small towns want she wrote my dad this letter and my dad said may i please publish this letter in my column and she gave him permission and he ended up publishing this letter okay so here's what she wrote. Her name was Floyd Chapman. She lived in a town of a thousand people in the Midwest. I like to think I'm a voice from the grassroots. I'm more than 60 years old, full-time employee of the locally weekly paper, substitute public school teacher and superintendent of the Sunday school of First Baptist Church. I've lived on a farm or in a small town most of my life. I love the Lord and his work, and I must confess I like people. In spite of all their shortcomings, I do. So I'm giving it the emphasis it has. She puts that in italics. I do like people, and I feel that many of them like me too. We often talk of things relating to the church, our Lord, and his word. It is true that we suspect new ministers of communism and are perhaps slow at accepting them. This is a changing and uneasy age, and we're afraid of being used. We believe in the word of God in America and are afraid unscrupulous persons will use us to work destruction to what we hold most dear and precious. We're very concerned with the criticisms of the World Council of Churches. That It was a liberal organization and all, all simple people hated it. Uh, and we're afraid of alliances with those with whom we are unacquainted. I think I could write a very good article entitled The Big Truth About Many Preachers. I feel that many are called to serve God, but perhaps in some different way. If the people are honestly convinced of a man's sincerity, they will not pay attention to what Sinclair Lewis or some other writer says, because few of the common people read as much as we'd like to think. (laughs) Oh my. Okay, wait, wait, wait. Many I know read only the following. The headlines, daily funnies, lost and found items, local items. Also, they read some farm magazine after a fashion, and then they turn on the TV. This is truth, whether we want to admit it or not. On Sunday, they go to church. They like to hear about Jesus because he loved them enough to put up with their failings. They are not especially interested in economics, except as it affects them directly, or in politics, except in presidential years. But they respect freedom beyond words. They despise anything that makes them lose their self-respect. And much talk to the contrary, they fear the creeping socialism that has made so many dependent upon the monthly government check that puts the bread in their mouths. Now, guys, this was written back in the 70s, okay? They know they are not learned or smart, and they fear people who are unless they love them. Love is something one feels, and if one loves, he overlooks much. Can you take the big truth, the fact that too many of our ministers do not like people? They love subject matter, but are not sympathetic with the daily problems and weaknesses of the common man. This is not a weakness confined to our own denomination. Too many think they know it all and do not give the other fellow credit for any knowledge. For instance, a pastor in our community a few years ago attempted to tell one of our more successful farmers about the superiority of horsepower. If it was or was not superior was not the point. The farmer was operating a large farm successfully and happily with his modern machinery. The minister should have been more tactful. If he knew nothing about modern farming, he could have kept still or asked questions. Sir, I'm only a small-town woman, but I'm sincere when I say there are a few qualifications a minister must have. Without them, regardless of denomination, he'll be accused of everything under the sun, including communism. (laughs) Number one, he must have had a sincere Christian experience and must sincerely love the Lord and his work. Do you love Jesus? Have you seen his forgiveness? Number two, he must have had a certain amount of training in Bible? Organization? And method. Number three, he must be willing to work. Not too good to use his hands at times and not too proud to ask help if he needs it. Number four, he must really like people. More than books, more than organization, and more than position. More than books, men. And number five, he must walk ahead, leading the people gently as a shepherd and not try to drive them with a whip. Perhaps this is not what you want to read. But it is truth, the big truth, about preachers and the common people. Let me close by reading this from the end of John. Jesus comes down to the beach. They're fishing. Jesus said to them, John 21, "'Come and have breakfast.' None of the disciples ventured to question him, "'Who are you?' Knowing that it was the Lord." Jesus came, and he took the bread and gave it to them, and the fish likewise. This is now the third time that Jesus was manifested to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. And so when they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he said to him, ten my lambs, ten my lambs. He said to him again a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, shepherd my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, Ten my sheep. Lots of things you can improve, you can change. Lots of things that are on your conscience now. But you start with love of God and love for your sheep, and you do what's right for your sheep. And don't let any man judge you. Don't let me judge you. Don't let any man judge you. But fix your eyes on Jesus. I do want to read one other verse from Hebrews uh, 12, because it's such an encouragement to me, and I thought it would be an encouragement to you all these, it's after the list of the heroes, all these died in faith without receiving the promises, but having seen them and having welcomed them from a distance and having confessed that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For those who say such things make it clear that they're seeking a country of their own. And indeed, if they had been thinking of that country from which they went out, you know, Christian looking back at the village in Pilgrim's Progress, if they'd been thinking about the country from which they came out, they would have had opportunity to return. But, as it is, they desire a better country. That is a heavenly one. And therefore, and I just absolutely love this. Don't you love it? Oh, my goodness. Their God is not ashamed to be called their God. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Are you ashamed to call you yourself Tim? I mean, I'm not, I'm ashamed of just me, you know, and this is God, and he is not ashamed to be called their God, for he's prepared a city for them. So, you're sitting there thinking, I'm just disgusting. You know, I am, so are you. God's not ashamed to be called our God. And so, just do what you can, be humble, but love your sheep, protect them. This has been a presentation of Warhorn Media. For more information, please visit warhornmedia.com, and welcome to the Reformation.